Thank you, Chris. Um, it is always a privilege and honor to be able to bring the Word of God to the people of God, um, and I am uh, very pleased to do that with you all today. Um, I, uh, as, as Chris was saying, uh, I was recently licensed in the uh, Presbytery uh, for our denomination, um, in this region of the United States. And uh, the reason I did that is because uh, in my, my job, um, I work with a missions agency that when there's not a pandemic on, uh, sends me around the world to help train pastors and future pastors who live in places where theological training is lapsing, lacking or uh, deficient. Um, and it is not unusual uh, if you are there on a Sunday, uh, at least in certain contexts, for uh, them to sort of point at you and say, you're up, uh, you're preaching. Um, and that, that sometimes can be uh, a bit of a surprise. Um, for that reason, uh, I decided it would, it would be good for me to pursue licensure uh, in the presbytery so that I would have a little bit of ecclesiastical support. I wasn't just showing up in people's pulpits and delivering the word of God without any accountability. Um, and so I've been able to do that. A, a surprise has been uh, the number of churches in the presbytery who have said, oh, you're licensed. Now you can preach for us, too. Uh, and so I've been uh, privileged to be able to fill in for a number of churches, even in the short time since I've been uh, licensed. Uh, today, I'm going to take us into what is, I know you're not supposed to have a favorite book in the Bible, but what is almost certainly my favorite book of the Bible, which is Psalms, Book of Psalms. And I take us to Psalm 22, um, one of uh, the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament, indeed one of the most quoted sections of the Old Testament in the New Testament, Psalm 22. If you're working from the Pew Bible, I believe it is page 457 that you'll want to turn yourself to. Um, when, uh, when Theodore Beza, uh, Beza was uh, John Calvin's successor, at Geneva, uh, one of the great figures of the Reformation there. When Theodore Beza thought about Psalm 22, he saw it as particularly noteworthy for how it declared the victory of Christ, who, and now I'm quoting him, who was, quote, gathering his church from all nations and preserving it for his sake. That was his reflection on Psalm 22, that this is a psalm about God gathering his church in the nations and bringing them into his kingdom. Um, it is a striking vision, um, a striking vision of God spreading his glory to the ends of the earth as he draws in a people for himself. We don't necessarily think of the Psalms first when we think of evangelism. Maybe we think of the book of Romans or some of the sermons in the book of Acts. But I want to try to convince you today that at least Psalm 22 should have us thinking about evangelism. I'm going to read the first 21 verses of the psalm, and we'll pause then, and we'll come back to the rest of it a bit later. So Psalm 22. This is the word of our God. To the choir master, according 
to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet... You are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. O Heavenly Father, You who have loved us beyond all measure, even to the sending of your own Son. I pray that you would give us your Son today in Psalm 22. Help us to see him who was crucified for us so that we might live in him. Give us faith, Lord, to lay hold of him, to rest on him, to trust in him, that we might draw near to you and experience your love, your mercy, and your faithfulness to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, uh, Psalm 22 then. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. Most of the psalms in the first book of the Psalter, that's verse the Psalms 1 through 41, are psalms of David. So it's no surprise that this is a psalm of David. But it fits within the first book of the Psalter, within a tightly packed and carefully organized cluster of psalms that are organized around the theme of kingship. Psalms 20 to 24 are kingship. Psalms. In fact, Psalms 20 and 21 are often explicitly identified as royal psalms. Royal psalms. And in those psalms, we have the words 
of the people of the king spoken about their king. That is to say, we don't hear in Psalms 20 and 21 the kingly figure himself speaking. Instead, what we get are the king's people talking about the king or perhaps talking to the Lord about their king. The kingly figure is on display, but we don't hear him speak. In some ways, because we don't hear the king speak, Psalms 20 and 21 feel a bit remote to us. It's a little bit like hearing the enthusiastic, no doubt enthusiastic, cheering crowd being interviewed at a football game rather than getting an interview with the player who was on the field. That's what Psalm 20 and 21 feel like, at least to me. Now, in in Psalm 22, the theme of kingship develops a bit more, but at least at first glance, the kingship focus of Psalm 22 is not on that kingly figure that we met in Psalms 20 and 21, but instead is on the kingship of the Lord, who is enthroned upon the praises of Israel, verse 3 tells us. That kingly figure seems to be much less prominent. Instead, the person that we meet is not a king, but a worm, right? A degraded man, lower than the low, lower than the dust even. And it's only as we get to the end of Psalm 22 that we suddenly realize that this worm is the kingly figure that we met in the previous two psalms. These five kingship psalms, not accidentally, this is on purpose, these five kingship psalms follow Psalm 19, a psalm that focuses on the Torah, on the law of the Lord. The king follows the Torah. He follows the way of the Lord. And as he does that, as he finds that it is more precious than gold, that it's sweeter than honey, as he knows that as he follows it, great rewards will come. As he does that, we get to find that Psalm 19 doesn't speak the last word. Psalm 19 is a sort of pattern. If you follow the words of the Lord, if you walk in his ways, you will receive great reward. But Psalm 22 gives us a very different picture, doesn't it? It gives us a picture of Psalm 19 gone horribly and terribly wrong. The fact that the king delights in the Lord, the fact that he has faithfully followed him all the days of his life, has landed him not with great reward, but in real trouble instead. And he finds himself afflicted. He finds himself on the verge of violent and painful death. Now this is obviously bad. It's bad for the psalmist. But it's, but it's bad in a way that suggests that there's a problem behind the problem. It's bad in a complicated way. Because Psalm 22 raises the stakes on a question that lies deep within the human heart. And deep within human life. Does what we trust have the ability to deliver us 
when we actually need it to? Will it meet us when we cry out to it? And if it can do it, if it can deliver us, will it actually do it? Does it have the ability and does it have the will to deliver us? Now, we all trust in something, whether that's ourselves, our own strength, our mental acuity, whether that is the, the, the government, whether that's science, whether that's um, our families, whatever it is, we all trust in something to get through our days. And Christians, too, have to wrestle with whether we can trust God to do what he said he would do. Can we trust him to do that? I want to offer to you the afflicted king here as a kind of a test case. This is one who has followed God unwaveringly, faithfully, from his mother's womb. And now, he finds himself in dire need and crying out to God. Will God deliver him? Will he? If he doesn't, what does that mean for the rest of us? The rest of us who are far less faithful than this afflicted king, who are far less deserving of being rescued than this one is. There's an echo here of the mocker's question from verse 8. Let's see if the Lord really rescues someone who is fully committed. To use a poker metaphor, someone who has slid his chips to the middle of the table, all of them, who holds nothing in reserve but has totally committed himself to his God. Let's see if the Lord delivers him. So let's turn to the word of our God. Psalm 22 is divided into two large sections. First, verses 1 through 21, and then a second, shorter section, 22 through 31. I want to first deal with that larger first part, and I want to do that in two sections. So we're looking at the first part, and first I want to focus our attention on verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11 are organized together. There's a kind of back and forth motion that goes on in verses 1 through 11. First, in verses 1 and 2, we get the experience of the king himself, his own experience of abandonment by God. And we can see that with all of the first person singular pronouns. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh my God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. And then... He switches. He moves to reflecting on how God has acted in the past with relation to his people. Verses 3 through 5. Yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. And then in verse 6, he's back to his own experience once more. But I am a worm and not a man. Once again, we get these first person pronouns. And then finally, in verse 9 through 11, yet you, once again, here reflecting on God's previous faithfulness to him as a younger man. Now there is, there is real tension in these verses. 
Why has God forsaken, forgotten, and abandoned this king now when God, when he needs God most? And I think the psalmist brings out this tension in particular by contrasting how God has saved his people in the past, that's verses 3 through 5, with the way that he is not saving his king right now in verses 6 through 8, even though the king has been completely faithful to his God, verses 9 and 10. Despite his faithfulness, the king is lower than the lowest. And if God's people in the past have have trusted in the king, have trusted in the Lord, even though they've been driven down into the dust and oppressed by their enemies. If they have trusted in the Lord, the Lord has delivered them. Think, for example, of the children of Israel standing there on the banks of the Red Sea with the, the chariots of Pharaoh bearing down on them, crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And what does he do? He delivers them. If God has delivered his people in times past, in spite of their limited faithfulness, then this one has suffered more. He has been ground down even further. He's not a man anymore. He is a worm. Verse 6. And this is terrifying. This is, there's a logic here that is absolutely terrifying. If God has abandoned the psalmist, then God is not faithful. And if God is not faithful, then he cannot be trusted. And if he cannot be trusted, then we are fools to trust him. And all of this stuff that we are doing makes no difference. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's all vanity, as the preacher says in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's chasing after the wind. Verses 12 to 21 don't get any more lighthearted. If anything, they sink down even deeper. If verses 1 to 11 are groans and cries, then verses 12 to 21 is a growing crisis. The worm-like king who has trusted God finds himself surrounded now in a visceral, immediate, existential way by a menagerie of animals, and all of them are fierce, none of them are friendly. The way that these verses are structured is in terms of what's called a chiastic pattern. A chiasm is a, a literary structure that allows the author to point our attention towards a specific element in the text. So look at the way that this text is organized. It's organized around a bunch of animals, right? So you begin in verse 12 with bulls. And then in verse 13, you get a lion. And then in verse 16, you get dogs. Then in verse 21, no, verse 20, you get a dog. And then in verse 21, you get a lion. And then again in verse 21, you get, well, not bulls, but oxen. You know, they're sort of all part of the bovine family. It's a little bit like a, like a mirrored pyramid, right? Each step moves us closer to the top. And what's at the top? The top is verses 16 to 19. The intense personal suffering of the afflicted king. He is encircled by evildoers. His hands and feet are pierced. They mock him 
uh, in that the startling way that they describe it, they wag their heads at him. They take his very clothes, his most intimate possession, and they leave him exposed and naked before the world. And the readers, us, right, we are led to ask the same question that the psalmist asks. Where is God at this moment? At the end of 15, verse 15, we get another piece of the puzzle. Because for all the merciless, unkind, uh, evil behavior of these evildoers, of these wicked men, when the psalmist looks at his situation, he sees that it is God himself who has brought him down and laid him in the dust. That's verse 15. He sees the hand of God in his affliction as his mouth is parched, his, his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. It's like gravel in there. As his strength wanes, as he closes his eyes in death, he sees the very hand of God working in his life and not in a positive way. You lay me in the dust of death. This is where nightmares come from. And it's not how things are supposed to work. Cast your mind through the history of God's people. Cast your mind just as the psalmist does in verses 3 through 5. Think of Joseph. right? Joseph who is betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery by them, who is falsely accused and imprisoned, and God delivers him. Think of Ruth. Ruth who abandons her land, her people, and her gods in order to bind herself to the God of Israel, to his people and to their land. She does this despite the fact that she knows she's destitute. She's impoverished. There's there's no hope here. And yet God delivers this woman of faith. He meets her in her need. Think about the book of, of Judges. And the way that these people constantly turned away from their God, constantly turned away from him over and over again, instead of following the way of life, instead of following the law of God, they did that which was right in their own eyes. Whenever they did that, God delivered them into the hands of their enemies. And then they repented and they turned back to God. And what does God do? He delivers them over and over and over again. And now the psalmist, this faithful man, finds himself not being delivered by God. We can, we can move forward into this difficult situation, perhaps by asking ourselves the question, why is it that God delivers his people when they repent and trust? Why is it that God would do that? Why is God faithful even when we behave faithlessly? And I believe that the answer to that question moves us into the heart of Psalm 22 and deep into the heart of the mystery of our faith. 
For the afflicted king suffers not on his own behalf, not for his own sake or for anything that he has done or failed to do. Rather, he suffers on behalf of his people. What should happen to the people happens to their king instead. That's the drama of Psalm 22. David may indeed have been the man who set quill to parchment in writing out this psalm, the first one perhaps to sing it. But the experience that's described transcends David's experience. And the cry of this worm-like man takes us to the very limits of what affliction can be. The picture that comes into focus is of a man who is suffering more than any other has or could suffer. Psalm 22 is a kind of a front row seat to the extreme outer boundaries of human affliction and endurance, socially, physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. He is bearing all of this in this moment in which he cries out. And before we move on, to the rest of the psalm, to, to, to resolve the crisis and the tension which I hope is being built up in your hearts and minds. Before we move on to the deliverance of the afflicted one and what that means for each one of us here and for the ends of the earth, I, I want to draw the obvious conclusion. And the obvious connection here is that Psalm 22 describes none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, our crucified King. Now, we we know this not just because Jesus is himself the fulfillment of all of the themes of deliverance and suffering and salvation that appear in the Old Testament generally. We know it also not just because Jesus' own experience of suffering and pain is described in detailed and striking ways in Psalm 22, maybe most especially verse 16 where we get those pierced hands and feet and verse 18 where we see lots being cast for his clothing. But we know it conclusively because on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the words of Psalm 22 and cried out to his God and Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry of Jesus from the cross has become known as the cry of dereliction, like a derelict boat abandoned and left on its own. There is Jesus on the cross, derelict by God. All four of the evangelists, as well as the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, hear explicitly in Psalm 22 the very voice of Jesus. And when we hear it, when we sing it, when we read it, we should be hearing the voice of our Lord speaking as well. But... Sometimes knowing that, sometimes knowing that our Lord Jesus is speaking in Psalm 22 creates confusion in the minds of believers. And so I want to I do a little bit of work here to try and dispel confusion or error that could arrive. Let's think for a minute. Let's reflect on what it means for Jesus to say that God forsook him, verse 1. That he refused to answer him, verse 3 that he stood far off from him. Verse 1, verse 11, verse 19, three times he says God is far from him. Now if we're not careful, 
our thinking can kind of go something like this. We say, wow, wow, Psalm 22 is about Jesus. This is a really big deal, right? Um, so, so, wow, it, it, it feels like the Father has abandoned the Son. It, it feels, like, feels like the Father has, has sort of disowned the eternal Son of God. Like, like the eternal Son of God maybe is getting the silent treatment from his dad. Right? This, this doesn't feel very good. This Boy, and, and, and the Son, the eternal Son of God himself, is angry at the Father for standing far away from him. Does this, does, does this mean that the Father and the Son are at one another? Is there, is there tension within the Trinity? Do the Father and the Son disagree? Is there, is there rupture within the Trinity itself? Uh, the short answer to this is no, right? Uh, th- this, this, by the way, would be bad for a lot of different reasons. Um, it would certainly undermine our salvation if the Father and Son disagree with one another. It would almost certainly destroy the entire universe. But fortunately, um, it's also impossible for this to be the case. And furthermore, it's not what Psalm 22 even teaches. So let's take a breath. Let's meditate for a moment on who God is. I don't want to present the idea that, that, that these deep central mysteries of our faith, things like the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Incarnation, that these are, are easy to explain or to understand. We are, after all, talking about the deep mysteries of the faith, the deep things of God. And when we hear Jesus cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is mystery here. There are depths which we cannot plumb because we are mere creations and not the creator himself. But the triune nature of God's being, his Trinitarian nature of Father, Son, and Spirit, it was not pulled apart. It wasn't divided at the cross. And we know this because God is not composed of parts and pieces like you and me. He can't be divided. The Trinity isn't a club with three members in it, where two members maybe get mad and they like kick the third guy out, or where one guy says, I don't want to be part of this club anymore, I'm leaving. That's not the way that the Trinity works. It's not a club. God's essence doesn't change. His essence, his attributes, the relationship between the persons, these are eternally perfect. Eternally perfect. They admit no change within them. The fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, these are complete in the fullest sense of that word. They are complete and they are integral. There is no fissure. There's no crevice, no crack within which bitterness or resentment can find a foothold. There's no way to divide the Father, Son, and Spirit because there's only one will in God. there, There is no point at which the Son goes rogue and decides that he's going to put the Father in a bind. There's no point at which the Son behaves like a sulky child forcing the Father to act. Instead, when we read Psalm 22, what we want to have at the front of our minds, what we want to be thinking about is God the Son 
as he took on flesh and blood, as he became man, as his two natures, human and divine natures, were united together in the one man, Jesus Christ. It's not the case that the eternal Son of God put on a human suit. right? It's not just that he, he put on flesh and blood. He became a real man. A true physical body. A soul prepared for him by his Father. These were united with his eternal divine nature in the person of our Lord. And why? Why would he do it? Why would he go to these extravagant lengths? It turns out that the reason that he did it was because it was necessary. It was necessary. And I want you to think about this because this is not something that we say lightly about the Son of God, that something was necessary for him to do. But Hebrews 2 assures us that it was. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 tells us that Christ had to, had to do it in order to save his people for our sake. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted. So when we hear Jesus say from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we are hearing is scripture turning up the volume on the man, Jesus, who is made like us in every respect so that he might be our representative, our new Adam, our guarantor of a new and better covenant, the one who pays the penalty that we deserved. This means that because Christ suffered, we can have confidence that we will be rescued when we cry out to our God. So finally, uh, we come to the second part of the psalm, the shorter part of the psalm, you'll be pleased to know. And if the first part of the psalm is lament, deep lament and descent, groans, crying, right, growing crisis, then the second part of the psalm is deliverance and praise, a great congregation with a great commission. So let's read the second part of Psalm 22. I'm going to get a head start, a running start, and I'm going to begin with verse 19 to the end. Once again, the word of our Lord. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. You saved me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. 
From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it, that he has done it. It's a startling transition, isn't it? from lament to praise, right? Obviously, something happens off stage, as it were, right around verse 21. But Psalm 22 doesn't tell us exactly how God rescues the king. We know the details of that story by going to the New Testament, that in the power of the Spirit, Jesus triumphs over death. He rises to new life. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He is crowned with glory and honor and power. His lament ceases. And the party begins. The party begins. There is here an important lesson for us to learn about lamenting. Lamenting is good. Lamenting is good. And when we are sad or anxious, when we are depressed, when we are tempted, when we are wounded, we should cry out to our God. Here in the upper Midwest, uh, I've only been here two years, but I've learned some things. Here in the upper Midwest, um, we do a few things very well, right? Uh, hot, hot, hot plates, you call them? Casseroles in other places? Hot, hot dish. Hot dish, right? You do hot dishes well. Uh, we do the snow really well. And weather in general, I'd say, uh, you're champs at that. Stoic resignation, very excellent at this. Lamenting, not so good. Not so good at lamenting. The king has no problem lamenting, and neither should we. Our lament should be long, and it should be loud, as is appropriate. And perhaps all the longer and louder, given that in this age in which we now live, this broken and sinful world, we do not yet see Christ exalted and his enemies put under his feet. We don't yet experience that. And so we lament. But as Psalm 22, verse 31 puts it, He has done it. Or John 19, as we read earlier, at the the confession, uh, at the, the declaration of grace, John 19, The words of Jesus from the cross, as he said, it is finished just before he bowed his head to die. Because of what our crucified king did, our lament never consumes us. It never wins the day for us. Now God meets us in Christ, in our sufferings as a merciful high priest who knows what it means to suffer. And if we have faith in Christ, then we are delivered from the vanity of this empty life. As 1 John 5.4 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. 
So we don't get to, to wallow. We don't get to stew in our lament. That's actually not lament. That's called self-indulgence. Right? Our lament comes to an end because lament for the Christian is not the goal. Lament for the Christian is not the goal. The goal is leading all of creation in praise of our God. If you are in a lament moment right now, then lament. That is good for you to do. While you wait for your God to respond, take comfort in knowing that your Savior experienced far more than you have. And take comfort in knowing that because of that, your day of trouble will come to an end. It is not going to be interminable. Know that the heart of God is turned towards you in Christ and that it pours forth mercy and love and faithfulness, tender kindness towards you, and all the more so as you call upon it in faith. And what about when you find yourself on the far side of lament? What about when you have moved through lament to what comes afterwards? Well, what do you do then? What does the king do? The king gathers a worship service. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The king now becomes the great choir master. He tells his people what God has done for them, and he calls upon them to praise God with him, to stand in awe of him, and to glorify their God. Verse 23. Brothers and sisters, they have good reason to do it. We have good reason to join the choir master in his praise, this afflicted king, his people, because what the king does, what the king receives, the people also receive. His reward, his victory, is our victory as well. And this is why Psalm 20, two psalms to the left. Psalm 20 culminates, it comes to an end in verse 9, with the prayer of the people saying, O Lord, save the king. Save the king, Lord. May he answer when we call upon him. What the king deserves is what his people get. Their salvation, our salvation, depends upon the king. But if it all depends upon the king, then what's our role in this? Are we really just fans in the stands watching Jesus win the match? Or do we actually get to enter into the drama of this moment? I think Psalm 22 highlights one thing that we are called to do in particular, and that is imitate the king. Specifically, imitate the king by praising your God because of what he has done for you. This doesn't mean pretending like bad things don't happen to you. They do happen to you. Acknowledge them. Lament. And when your brothers and sisters are lamenting, lament alongside of them. It also doesn't mean avoiding situations that are going to lead you into lament. Right? Don't just keep your head down. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just get along to go along. Maybe it's go along to get along. Right? Those sorts of things seem like wise approaches because they won't lead to lament. But 
If you are standing with Christ in this world, you will find yourself at enmity with this world, and that will lead to lament. The life of the Christian in this age is a life that passes through lament. But lament doesn't go on forever. Lament is a step toward praise. You have to lament to get to praise. So put on God's armor in the midst of your lament and having done all, stand and pray with all supplication and prayers. But when you find yourself on the other side of lament, and this is really important, praise the Lord. Praise Him privately because God deserves your praise privately. He deserves that from you. But praise Him publicly because your brothers and sisters need to be encouraged by what God is doing in your life. This is a way in which He builds up His church here in Rochester and around the world. So praise Him publicly because this is a way in which the church will be encouraged and there's more. This is a way in which God will expand his kingdom. Look at verse 27. The king praises the Lord before his people. He tells them what the Lord has done for him. And they join him in praising the Lord. But this cascade of praise doesn't stop there. As the people praise the Lord for delivering their king, all the ends of the earth hear them. And the ends of the earth remember. And they turn to their king. They remember that there is only one king. There is only one God. And he is their one king. He is their one God. They turn to him because of the praises of God's people. They remember that the Lord is their king. They worship him. A waterfall of worship ensues, filling the whole earth. And no one is excluded. Both the prosperous and the lowly. Verse 29. Bow before the crucified king. They proclaim his righteousness to one another. And more to a generation not yet born. Now his worship fills not just space, but time as well. Did you know that God gave praise as an evangelistic tool? That it is a way whereby the church and the kingdom of God are expanded in this age. As God cares for his church, as he delivers her, as he forgives her, as he he preserves her, as he strengthens his church, protects her, and as we respond with praise, that praise is like a flag waving in the wind that draws people who are outside to come inside and to join the praise of the living God. So, brothers and sisters, Psalm 22 presents the praise that you will offer to him as a compelling witness to the world. You want to know how the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth? Praise. Praise is central to that process. I want to encourage you as individuals, as families, and as this congregation of God's people. I want to encourage you to be quick 
to recognize what God is doing among you. Lament when you need to lament. But praise God on the other side of that. Let that be a compelling witness to your neighbors that all the ends of the earth might remember and turn to their God. Amen. Pray with me if you would. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us Christ and in him you have given us all things. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to move through lament, recognizing the reality of it, but not stopping there, moving instead into praise, praise of you, our God, who sent your Son and who has sent your Spirit to draw us close to him and through him to you. Would you give us mouths that are ready to praise you? We pray in our Savior's name. Amen.